Hi, I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools, where we discuss strategies for creating inclusive and equitable schools and youth programs that help students to develop both commitment and capacity to build ethical institutions. We're delighted today to post an interview from our sister podcast, a correctionpodcast.com, hosted by Lev Moscow. Lev talks with two student activists, Coco Rum and Hiba Jamal, about the campaigns to integrate the New York City school system. We think you'll enjoy it. And to make it easier to use audio clips from our podcasts as jumping off points in classes and workshops, we're now providing transcripts and overviews on our website, ethicalschools.org. Good listening and Happy New Year. show today we've got two guests i think this is the first time um that we've done this before our first guest is coco rum and the second guest is hibba jamel i think you will all enjoy the show very much today so coco let me do this let me just let me introduce you to the audience and and we can get started now does that sound good yeah that's great we are here with coco rum who is a college freshman at uh, Williams and has been working around integration, school integration in New York City since at least you were a sophomore. Is that right, Coco? Yeah, I'd say like late 2016. Um, You were a a policy leader for Integrate New York City and Teens Take Charge. Do you want to add anything? So I, through Teens Take Charge, was a pretty active member of the Department of Education's Student Voice Working Group, and also was starting in December of, or November, late November of 2018, was a representative for King State Charge on the Mayor's School Diversity Advisory Group. And yeah, I was the, in my senior year of high school, I was a, the director of policy for both organizations, which was an interesting place to be. What, what do you make of Carranza and, and the de Blasio administration? Have they been good around school integration? Well, I think that like de Blasio um, has been a disaster around integration. He really has not done anything to make actual policy change. And he has his equity and excellence agenda, which is all nice to hear about. But when it comes to tangible policy change, it's been really lackluster, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, and, and equity is good, but... Fundamentally, we have a really segregated system um, and separate just is not equal, no matter how much equity you introduce. And so he's been lacking. And Carranza has done a good job of bringing the word segregation into the public sphere. Um, I think he knows that he's done that in a way that Farina didn't. But when it, again, when it comes to real policy change, I am consistently disappointed <laughs> with the lack <laughs> and the the whole, you know, all the people who are important that work at the DOE or who are, you know, consistently given a seat at the table who aren't from the DOE, but, you know, doing important policy work might be well-intentioned or might really believe that integration is important. But um, as a student, it seems like there's absolutely no follow-through and commitment. So I would say that they're doing a pretty bad job. 
Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's been so difficult for them to take steps with integration policy? Um, I mean, I think there's a few reasons. So if we take the like specialized high school debate, the parents who have voice and who have power um, and who are being listened to are, are those who are opposing integration. They tend to be either like wealthier white people or low income Asian people. And they are making a fuss about it. They're being loud about it. And when policy changes are proposed, they're saying no. And so it's I think the mayor, especially who was running for president earlier this year, cares about the public opinion a great deal and wants to, you know, be liked and electable. And and integration is contentious. And it, it means um, to really integrate the schools means to fundamentally redistribute power and resources and change how our schools have operated from being a real dual system to being one where you know, all students are getting a more equal education with each other and in schools that are more reflective of the city's diversity. And I think that is scary for people who have been benefiting from the inequality and the segregation of the system. And those are the people who are loudest. And when I and I when I've met with the mayor and the chancellor, they say, you know, we need a majority, we need to build a movement. Um and that's just not happening right now. Or, you know, students are speaking out and saying something, but no one really wants to do something that is going to make the people who are going to donate to your campaign unhappy. But Coco, at this point, he's, you know, he's not running for anything. So what's what's holding him back now? Quite frankly, like, I think that he, it's, it's so hard for me to know. It really actually blows my mind that we are not able to make change. But I think, honestly, like, he's been a benefactor of that system, too. His daughter went to Beacon. His son went to Brooklyn Tech. Yeah, he's not running for president anymore, and he can't be the mayor again. Mm -hmm. But it's still, even if he doesn't have as much, I think he still is um, hyper aware that to actually do it means to really stir the pot up and to disrupt, you know, how power and resources have been allocated in the system. And that's never popular. Let's say he said, okay, like, tell me, tell me some policy initiatives to implement. What would your, say, your big three initiatives be? Um, I would say remove all screening. So schools like Beacon have students do a variety of things. So that could be like submitting a portfolio or taking a special test that a given school has designed or going in for an interview, um, things like that, having certain grades and test scores. So I would remove those screens. Wait, I have a question, though. It, mm -hmm. Let's say you were going to design a school. Wouldn't you want... So I went to I went to Central Park East when I was a kid, and Central Park East was, by all measures, a very diverse school. But one of the things that the that Debbie Meyer was looking for, she was the founder, she was looking for kids, for families who wanted to be there, who knew what... Central Park East was doing, and they were doing really kind of imaginative things in the classroom 20 years before everyone else was. But they wanted to make sure that there was buy-in from the parents. So in that sense, there there was a screen. Do you think that that kind of screen also has to go? Well, I mean, I might be misunderstanding this question, but I think what that's about is the idea of school choice and the idea mm -hmm. that, you know, there's like 450 or so public high schools and students can pick up to 12 to rank on a list that they get to have choice in the system. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's complicated. Quite frankly, I think that no one's really talking about whether or not we should have school choice. The conversation is like, how do we make the playing field for mm -hmm. choice? 
more or less equal. And I mean, that's something, the idea of whether or not we should have choice is, is a complicated one and something that I'm still like wrestling with. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that just removing barriers to access to certain schools doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to integrate the school system or have equitable outcomes. And I mean, to a certain extent, I think that choice can be valuable because not all schools, you know, one school might focus on science more or one school might focus on dance more and certain students might want to focus on science or dance more. And that can potentially be valuable. But I think that by and large, the function of choice is to lead to inequity or at least how it's existed thus far. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure, but I think we certainly can't just remove barriers to access and say, you know, and call it a day and say, well, now the schools are going to be integrated. Mm -hmm. Um, There have to be intentional policies that will work to direct students to go to certain schools in a way that integrates those schools and integrates those students. So a school that has barriers, would you say that that kind of school just shouldn't exist? Because I guess if you got rid of the barriers, it, it wouldn't be what it is, right? Well, I mean, that's also another tricky question and something I've thought a lot about is like, what does it mean for Beacon to be Beacon? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that some of the associations we have as, you know, or as, as a student at Beacon, something I've noticed about the community there, or former student, I guess, um, mm-hmm. is that the ideas that people have about what makes Beacon unique are very much tied to ideas of race and class as opposed to certain educational merits um, or values, like Beacon, I would say is Beacon in large part because we don't take the region. Mm-hmm. And that lets teachers keep more towards, you know, things that are interesting and passionate to them and less towards the test curriculum. And that could still stay the same. Yeah, or I think, I think that's one example of something that makes Beacon Beacon. But I don't think that really students when they talk about what makes Beacon Beacon Mm -hmm. or like what a a Beacon student is when they're saying you know like I'm a Beacon student I am so heavily involved with a bajillion extracurriculars and take a taxi to school or I get my like Lenny's iced coffee every single day for three dollars those ideas of like who a Beacon student is have much more to do with race and class than they do like the intellectual values of the school. So when we say Beacon's a good school, you're saying that's what we're actually saying. We're really saying it's a wealthy school. Yeah, and I think that Beacon is a good school for reasons that aren't associated to its wealth. Like I think that there's a lot of value to like not taking standardized tests or to having a robust art program. But I don't think that necessarily that's really what people are talking about when they're talking about what makes a good school good. And I think that's also really complicated by the idea of resources and funding, which is heavily tied to race. Wait, but don't all school, don't all students get the same amount of money in New York City? Or is that not true? Well, so, I mean, actually, I think that there are certain schools that get more money that are predominantly Black and Latinx because I'm going to say the wrong title right now, but they're they receive federal funding, but we have a PTA that raises last year, the New York Times just reported this yesterday, like 600 and something thousand dollars, which is a ridiculous amount of money and totally supersedes the amount of money that we would be allocated if we were just, you know, relying on our 
per pupil funding from the from the state or from the city. So would that be um, the second policy that you would tell de Blasio, like you have to put a, a limit on how much uh, parents can contribute to the PA? I would say that we need more of like a pooling and reallocating of resources, mm-hmm. because if you just limit it and say, well, you know, Beacon, you can only have $100,000 a year. I mean, our schools are just underfunded in general. So I don't think if people want to donate, though, I would say that if you said, let's integrate the schools, all the white parents would be less, you know, willing to chip in or they might just not stay in the school system, which is another complication. But I think that the the idea is that we need to pull all the money and reallocate it because that's how you, um, I would say, like maximize the good. So I guess that would be one of the things. But I would also say, in addition to removing the screens, we need to have some sort of mechanism for integrating students. What I've worked with or what I've worked on with Teens Take Charge is kind of this idea of a universal op-ed program. Um, oh my God, I say op-ed always. Oh, ed-op. Ed op. <laughs> ed op. That is, has killed me for years and years. Um, <laughs> universal ed-op program. What, um, what's, for people who are not familiar with New York City or how the admissions process works, what is that? So an ed-op program basically functions to take, if you have a given applicant pool, the you want a representative population coming out of the applicant pool where 25% are kind of like the bottom of the applicant pool, depending on what metrics they're using. Using Usually that's like state test scores or kind of GPA. 50% are from the middle group of applicants and then 25% are from the top group of applicants. So there are ed op schools currently. An example of that is Murrow. Mm. Murrow is, I would say, more representative than a school like Beacon, though I, I also think that we don't really have ed op schools and the idea of implementing universal ed op system would have to be about not the applicant pool, but about matching city demographics, mm-hmm. because there are also behavioral changes that need to happen to get schools to match city demographics. And so if you're looking at a school where, you know, like 99% of the applicants are Black and Latinx, and you do add off within that pool, you're not actually going to integrate the school. So kind of the idea of moving towards the universal ed op system um, would certainly be up there. I think that would do a lot to make our schools more representative of the city's demographic. You know, I know that some of the argument against ed op is that is that it actually doesn't serve anyone well. So it doesn't serve the students who are at the bottom because the work is too challenging for them in the class. And it doesn't serve the students who are ready for rigorous work because you have to slow everything down. What do you think about that argument? Well, I think that it's wrong. Um, I actually yesterday was reading an article about how Estonia ranks quite high on worldwide tests above the UK because it was an article in the BBC. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things Estonia does is it puts all students, regardless of, you know, their skill level or their proficiency as determined by whatever, you know, testing metrics they're using in Estonia in the same classroom. And, And there are studies that show that for college students that need kind of remedial classes, the best thing for them is to be in or for just for students to be in classes that are at their grade level or where they should be and then outside of class be getting extra help if they need. It doesn't really help to siphon off students who are performing what we think is kind of below where they should be 
I think according to the studies that I've read, I haven't seen evidence that there's any harm in putting students in more challenging classrooms as long as they're getting um, adequate attention. I think for like high achieving students, one, there's value in like being in a classroom where you're challenged not just because everyone else is performing at necessarily the same level as you, but like people are thinking differently. And I think that a really important piece of making this work well is teaching or training teachers to teach like in a diversified classroom. Um, and so that there's a way to make the, the content more challenging for certain students if it seems like they're not being challenged in the classroom. But I think that it can completely be done and done effectively and done in a way that actually leads to better outcomes. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been looking at the literature from Integrate NYC and one of the things that you've been saying that they make really clear is that some schools have a lot more resources than others. Part of me feels like that's, while that's absolutely true, even if we had a redistribution of resources from wealthier schools to, to poorer schools, and, and again, you can tell me if you think I'm wrong here, that alone wouldn't do anything to change outcomes if you don't also give people good places to, to live and universal health care and fundamentally give people some kind of stability um, outside of the school. So, and this would be my criticism of, of say, Integrate's platform, and then you can tell me why, you know, you can tell me what you think about it. But you know, in some ways, it almost doesn't seem to be talking about the elephant in the room, which is the kind of the inequities that exist in the larger society. What's the strategy of Integrate? Why don't they do that? Is it a conversation they don't want to have? Is it a conversation like, it's just too big? What do you think? Well, I mean, and I also don't want to, I, because I'm no longer a, an employee of Integrate NYC, okay. I want to be careful about Okay, so then don't speak for Integrate. Don't speak for Integrate. So what do, what do you think about it? Okay, well, I think a few things. I think you're right. Like, I think that to a certain extent, you're correct. But I think that, once again, like, not all hope is lost. Mm -hmm. I think two things. So, one, the community school model is a really great, I would say, answer to that. And I don't really know the extent, even though I was involved in a policy capacity, there's no formal policy about that at Integrate NYC. I know there is at Teams Take Charge, because mm -hmm. at least there I had I don't know. I personally had more agency in shaping that policy agenda. But I would say that the community school model is a really valuable way of um, thinking about what schools can be and how they can kind of help deal with that and making schools at the center of the community. So if it's a community where students like might not have enough money to go to the laundromat, then the school could have a washer and dryer or like someone to test eyesight, you know, kind of doctors and nurses that can like be there and staff that works with the family and the parents and not just the students and but also you know also the students and having enough guidance counselors and free breakfast lunch and you know potentially dinner um, and really making the school a center of the community to help provide stability in places where there might not be I think that's a really valuable way of imagining schools or thinking about schools and it's being done in some places in the city that I think helps deal with that in part but I also think that schools have the power to transform and not to say that we can solve you know systemic racism and wealth inequality through schools but I think that schools are incredibly important and certainly as it stands now they're producing unequal outcome unequal outcomes and so 
well, resource redistribution might not solve the problem, not solving resource distribution is exacerbates the problems that we see. I think it's true that we have to be too careful about saying that integrating schools and allocating resources right is going to fix the world, but I think that it's going to help. I think that data and research shows that it's going to help and that it's powerful. And I think that we can imagine schools that can do even more than just reallocating resources and integrating students, but also becoming you know, centers of the community where they can introduce stability. We're here with Hiba Jamel, who at the age of 15 became a well-known advocate in education reform, known for her impact towards tackling injustice and vision for the possibility of a transformed society. Hiba was featured in the New York Times in Young Muslim Americans Are Feeling the Strain of Suspicion for her perspective on the impact of Islamophobia on the young Muslims and her vision for a more conscious, educated, harmonious society. Since then, she's continued to be a voice for integrated, equitable schools for New York City and co-created the first ever citywide youth council on school integration run by Integrate NYC for me. She also works for American Muslims for Palestine and is a youth policy fellow for Appleseed New York. She is a junior at City College. Is that all right? Yeah. Emma? yeah, yeah. Tell me. I mean, I was. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Tell me what's wrong. Yeah, I'm a junior at City College, but I also I was a formal I'm like formally a, a youth policy fellow. That that uh, bio is a little old. Oh. But yeah. Wait, what does that mean? It means you're no longer at Appleseed, or yeah. yeah, no, no, I'm no longer at Appleseed. All right. Unfortunately, you're you're right yeah. now. You're just focusing on your studies at at City College. Yeah, so I'm just kind of like focusing on studying, try to do activism when I can, but. Yeah, I mostly focus on schoolwork right now. Okay, and I, and I should say, while you say you're like you're mostly focusing on schoolwork, you're probably doing a million things, and you are <laughs> still doing activism work. So, but Heba, it's a real pleasure to have you on. I've wanted to have you on now for a long time, so it's great. But it's also just great to get to talk to you. Full disclosure, I I taught Heba in tenth uh, grade, and then again in twelfth grade. But I think what was most fun was talking to you in 11th grade when I wasn't your history teacher, but about books. Like we were, we were exchanging novels uh, on a weekly basis. And that was, that was a real highlight of the year. We were also talking a lot about school integration. And I think it was your 11th grade year that you really started to do activism work around that topic. And today's show is all about school integration. So Hiba, can I, let's start there. What made you get involved in this work? Well, uh, this is a very, uh, this is a story I, I, I feel like I tell often. Yeah, but, but our audience probably um, hasn't heard it, so don't say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I say that only because even I, although it's, I, I've, tell, I've told it often, I still think it's important. It's something like that totally transformed how I look at activism in general. And it actually all started, so I was featured on the cover, cover of New York Times. It was just kind of like a... Um, a piece on Islamophobia and, you know, highlighting specific youth. And after that, I was invited to speak at some high schools totally unrelated to school integration. And I spoke at one particular high school where I totally felt like diversity, inclusion and feeling of, you know, a diverse environment was very present and something that I lacked when I was at Beacon. And I realized like, the concept of diversity and inclusion was very abnormal to me, and I didn't understand why until it was a conversation I actually had with you, which was 
understand like understanding that New York City is one of the most segregated school, school systems in the country. So all of this honestly like stemmed from me asking the question of question of like why is this happening and uh, the following months and years were just responding to that initial like curiosity um you know once you like find an injustice like you kind of tackle it and so i found the organization integrate new york city at first i was really talking about integration as much as i could you know talking about school segregation i was honestly talking to the wall though like i i did not you know students at beacon they understood and they empathized but it was something that they couldn't really grasp at the time so I really didn't feel like I was making any progress when I was doing, you know, student activism at Beacon. There were, you know, murmurs here and there, but nothing really substantial. It was when I found the organization Integrate New York City. I didn't found it. Like I, I, I stumbled upon it. No, no, I stumbled upon it. And it was a very small organization at first. It was honestly just like you know, advisory group where they were passionate about school integration, but no real policy platforms or advocacy that was taking place. And, you know, I met the former executive director, Sarah Kamasholi, and she really just kind of took me in and had me come up with a lot of different ideas. And one of them was establishing a youth diversity council. And, you know, I had the idea of like, you know, why don't we have a youth diversity council where we, you know, students meet every month and really talk about the issues that are affecting us. And it was through that where we came up with like, you know, a lot of different educational policies that are actually, you know, being implemented across the city, whether it's District 15 or now even District 9 that's like trying to implement our concepts of like racial inclusion and, um, you know, diversity diversity platform and yeah i mean can i stop you there yeah sure your platform is built around the five r's right so maybe you could talk a little bit about what those five r's are yeah sure so the five r's as we like to call them they actually started with only three right but we understood that integration is much more complicated and in order to do it right there had to be a more there had to be there had to be a more like inclusive concept of, of what it should be. And so the first R was uh, race and enrollment. We always understood the idea that like there is something specifically wrong about how we admit students into our schools, whether we saw it at Beacon, like the interview process, if it has racial bias in it, if there's things that that favor a certain type of student over another or even like. If we look at like specialized high school tests, how the merit of the test itself can actually further and deepen racial disparities um, and segregation. Uh, The second one is resource allocation. So understanding that it's not just the you know, it's not just who gets admitted to the school, but it's also the resources that are allocated within every school. Every school should have the same amount of resources and opportunities. You know, it's not just it shouldn't it shouldn't just be the elite schools that have those. The third R is relationships. Mm -hmm. So having culturally responsive curriculums, building bridges between different identity groups throughout the school, you know, understanding that there is such a thing as self-segregation. And at the end of the day, the whole point of this is to try to build bridges between students' identities and cultural backgrounds. The fourth R 
is representation. So focusing also not just on the diversity of students, but also on faculty and staff. Oftentimes students can't really connect or understand sometimes the experiences of their teacher. And if they had teachers with similar backgrounds, similar experiences, it's proven that students learn better. And the last one is restorative justice. So understanding that there is a hyper militarization of our schools where you have so many security guards metal detectors like you know students feel like they're in a prison and Mm -hmm. that's where the idea of a school to prison pipeline even comes from that if you're treated like you're a prisoner um and you're treated like you're a criminal that cycle is really hard to break after high school Mm -hmm. so understanding that all of this stuff is really systemic and if this all of this has to be tackled simultaneously it can't be you know one or the other all of this should be happening at the same time in order for a sustainable integrated high school to form yeah so maybe you can talk a little about what what is happening in district 15 here in new york a lot of really dedicated teachers parents students even came together to try to create an honest effort at integration um specifically tackling middle schools though like trying to remove screens from middle schools having the intention of diversity and there was actually a report done like because this this happened over like a year and a half ago and there was there's been a lot of different news articles that actually showed that white students didn't leave when more diversity came in like that was the major argument like if you had more diverse students there will be white flight like this major thing that gets thrown around often Mm -hmm. Um, but that wasn't the case so it's showing like a real success of having different people together and not affecting those who are already in the school so the sky hasn't hasn't fallen yeah basically do, yeah. You, do you think that it was basically that lots of white families just have these unfounded fears that they think that if you allow students of color in the school or if you allow students who are lower income in the school that suddenly there'll be chaos in the stairways i mean what is going on here what what's behind yeah. this resistance I mean, part of it, you just kind of have to call it for what it is. It really is racism, honestly. Like, I, you know, a lot of people do tend to throw around the word, but I do think that beneath all of the excuses and all of the fears, it really is having a strong, uncomfortable feeling towards people that are different from you. I'll just give you an example. Like, I had a family member who went to a very under-resourced, segregated high school. And it was mostly, it, it was majority black high school. And she didn't even have science classes, no Spanish classes, nothing substantial. And she got into, she didn't get into any good colleges in America, right? It's, it's crazy, actually. What she did was... Not only did she like pass a lot of expectations that people had of her, she went to Europe, applied to medical school in Poland, and is actually doing a phenomenal job in medical school right now at 19 years old. So people underestimate students of color, people from low-income communities. It's it's, it's ridiculous. Like, it's just not. Do you you find that when you talk about this stuff publicly – that you shy away from saying it's racism or do you feel like it's helpful to call it what it is? Or do you feel like saying it's racism makes, makes white people feel super uncomfortable? 
Well, I mean, my role, honestly, isn't to make white people feel comfortable. It's mostly to advocate policies to powerful people that can make it happen, right? So I always had this concept that, like, you know, segregation didn't happen naturally. It happened by force, right? And so I honestly felt, I honest, sometimes, you know, and, and a lot of people don't necessarily agree with this tactic, but sometimes they feel like integration should also happen by force. Like, why should we have the permission of white parents for black kids to have good, you know, equitable opportunities on for education, right? Like, I... I don't know, I find that notion of just like almost asking them for permission is Mm -hmm. ridiculous to me. But at the same time, I know that's not how the world works, right? Like I know that there has to be a level of convincing as well and breaking down barriers in order for some sort of, you know, sustainable method of integration to occur. Um, And also there is a really negative interpretation of integration in this country because of the busing crisis and the history that that played when it was when desegregation was happening a lot of a lot of families a lot of families are not really you know at first they don't they don't buy integration they don't buy that they have are to have are you talking about uh, white, white families or are you talking about everybody no i mean like i mean i'm actually talking about like at first i'm just giving you like mm-hmm. experience like at first a lot of minority communities felt almost offended at the idea of why should we have, you know, integration with white schools in order for our children to have a good education. That's the idea. Like, that's why our our integration platform at Integrate New York City did not just tackle racial, you know, race enrollment, right? It tackles more than that. And it's and it's it has to be a more comprehensive look at integration that people before us just didn't understood and did it like terribly wrong. So making like learning from the mistakes of the past and making sure we don't repeat them. Mm-hmm. You're also a, a committed activist around the issues of Palestinian justice, Palestinian independence. Do you see any connection between the work you do around school integration and, and the work you've done and continue to do around Palestinian rights? Yeah, I just came back from a rally, actually, at school. Um, And, yeah, I I think about it a lot. And the connection that, like, for me, I always look at the similarities between why I'm passionate. I mean, I am Palestinian. That's why I'm passionate. But more than that, it's this idea of the, like, the separation of people, right? So when you separate people, you, uh, there's oppression, there's injustice that occurs. Similarly in Palestine, you have apartheid occupation and the physical separation of different types of people. And honestly, it's, it's the same idea. Like you, there is an othering that's occurring in the New York City public education system. And that in itself is unjust and oppressive. So I like to tie in a lot of my activism with this idea that like if you separate people and if you part- participate in like the othering of people who aren't as I like to I like to think of it as power like people that aren't as powerful as you there again like there's injustice and oppression I try to dedicate a lot of my time to combating those like that same logic. 